Hello, and welcome back from your weekend. We're back from our weekend, too. You know, I made this resolution at the end of last year not to follow what I call, stealing this phrase kind of from Nate Silver, bright, shiny objects, by which I mean in particular sort of weird things that President Trump tweets about and, and odd behaviors that he engages in, you know, that are they're interesting. They elicit curiosity, but they're not really the substance of what he's doing. So today I'm kind of in the process of breaking the <laughs> resolution. Not really, because I think what we're going to be talking about today is substantive. But some of it could be, could be uh, just traced back to his tweets of yesterday where he was, or was it two days ago now, uh, where in a tripartite tweet, he made some very specific claims about his own mental stability and about his own intelligence. Um, And he referred to himself, of course, as a very stable genius. Um, We're going to examine both of those claims today. We're going to begin with the conversation that's been going on for quite some time now. Didn't start this weekend, didn't start with Michael Wolf. A conversation that's been going on quite some time uh, with clinicians and, uh, and professors of psychiatry who've been looking for quite some time at Trump's behavior um, and and asking the question, are, are, is there some reason to get an, ass, an assessment here? Is there some argument that he should be examined and diagnosed? Not that he has condition XYZ, but that maybe there's a, a, a reason to at least sort of get a closer look at who he is and and, and what he thinks uh, about himself. Uh, Anyway, I'm not expressing that very well. (laughs) We're going to talk about that in the first segment today. In the second segment, we're going to talk about his claims of intelligence. And we're not going to analyze those because it's impossible to do. But we are going to talk about the way people who are really smart tend to talk about themselves. Um, And uh, also, we'll talk a little bit about the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect. We did an entire show about overconfidence, which is essentially what the Dunning-Kruger effect is all about. That, uh, most people um, overestimate their own abilities. I've, I'll have the percentage wrong, but it's something like 64% of Frenchmen say that they are better than average lovers. Um, and I mean, so people tend to sort of have a higher opinion of themselves than is warranted. But we'll also just talk about there's a certain way. If you like, if you think about the smartest person you know, there's a certain way that he or she talks about himself or herself. And it's not for the most part with claims of genius. Uh, and in the final segment last night were the Golden Globes. They were an unusual Golden Globes. They probably the centerpiece of the Golden Globes was a speech given by Oprah Winfrey. We're going to bring you up to date on on all that, both the awards and and, and there's even an Oprah for President Groundswell, you might say, happening already. So um, we're going to begin, however, with Bandy X. Lee. Dr. Bandy X. Lee is assistant clinical professor uh, in law and psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, she uh, is the editor of the Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, uh, a book that came out last year uh, in which a group uh, of clinicians explored the question uh, of why there might be, 27 psychiatrists uh, explored the question of why there might be a case for an emergency evaluation of President Trump's mental status. So Dr. Bandy Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So where does this conversation start? You've been involved in, in briefing members of Congress uh, about this idea. So um, obviously your briefing is a lengthy thing. We don't have time to go through it. But in general, in a nutshell, what do you tell them? So first of all, I'm speaking on my own behalf, sure. and I don't re- represent the views of Yale University. Uh, and also, I do not reach out to lawmakers, but I am available to them as an expert consultant. So if either party, any 
um, governmental body wishes to um, consult with me, I'm available to them. Uh, what I have been doing is actually um, uh, sounding an alarm, if you will, uh, and it's not just myself or the 27 mental health exer- experts in the book, but now there are thousands of us. So actually, it's a bit of a a national movement, if you will, uh, that is unprecedented in our history. Uh, We're all, we have a consensus uh, that Mr. Trump in the office of the presidency is, is a risk to national and international security, and that he poses a, a threat to public health. So, so make that, I mean, one could argue that, that anybody with that much power is dangerous, that anybody who has the power to launch nuclear missiles and even conceivably you know, materially alter the face of the planet and endanger life on Earth uh, is dangerous. Why would President Trump be more dangerous than the average person? Well, um, exactly what you said. Uh, the power that is invested in the office of the presidency is enormous. Uh, it's uh, an amount that could destroy the entire world many times over. The other part of it is, uh, of course, Mr. Trump's mental functioning, because the ability to make sound, rational decisions and uh, to uh, to be able to take in information that's uh, important and accurate, uh, those kinds of things are important when one is in command of such power. So we actually are not interested in Mr. Trump's personal health, but we are interested in the effects that he is having on public health and also uh, the risk to public health that he is posing. So do you make a distinction between what we might call organic deterioration and a psychiatric disorder? And let me just put a little more clarity into that. So, I mean, there, for example, if you read the Michael Wolf book, there are descriptions uh, that supposedly come from AIDS saying that he has accelerated a habit he had of repeating exactly the same story with all of the details as if it were a completely fresh story 30 minutes after the time that that he told it the first time. And that when he visited Mar-a-Lago, I think in November, he did not seem to recognize people that he knew quite well, people who were friends uh, of his. We could give some other examples, too, but that, that to me would fall into sort of cognitive deterioration, whereas there's a whole bunch of other things, like talking about chocolate cake after you've launched missiles against people, which I would put, I'm not, I'm not you, but I would put that in more of a sort of psychiatric disorder category. Well, you're, you're correct in that uh, there are two... Uh, two signs and um, two groups of symptoms, you might say. One is psychological, the other is cognitive. Uh, he is dangerous for both reasons. Uh, psychologically, because he has this proneness for violence and he goes into belligerence and attack mode whenever he uh, feels stressed and uh, and has already caused uh, increased violence and, and has fascination with nuclear power. I mean, that's... that's uh, uh, the psychological side of, of pretty extreme danger. Um, and the other one is the cognitive side. Uh, not only what, what you just described, but uh, many of his interviews, people have widely noted that uh, he has lost over time the, the ability to complete sentences, to stay with a thought, to use complex words, uh, 
uh, and not to make loose associations that is jumped from one topic to another. Uh, and, uh, and also in his speeches, we have noted that he repeats words and, uh, and sometimes stories. So it's, it wouldn't be surprising that he would, uh, repeat stories, you know, a half hour or an hour from, from the, there on. And, um, so these are symptom categories, but they don't really necessarily point to the source. Um, the source can be for either either one. It can be uh, psychiatric. It can be physical. It can be uh, medical, neurological. It can be medication induced. So that is what would um, help us to understand it better through an exam, a personal exam, and that would then yield a diagnosis. So uh, what we're uh, suggesting for someone who has these signs is to get an urgent neuropsychiatric evaluation as well as an urgent capacity evaluation because his position is so important. We're actually not concerned about his mental health state or his private health condition, we're concerned that he would be able to function in his office. So a capacity evaluation would also be important. So obviously um, he seems temperamentally indisposed to cooperate with such an effort. So if you have these concerns and you express them very well, um, the next thing that would have to happen would be that somebody else would have to persuade uh, President Trump, or maybe even do more than persuade President Trump to to have such yeah. an evaluation. So, would, do you, is there a clear path to something like that? Yes, in fact, we deal with it all the time in psychiatry. Uh, the more impaired someone is, the less likely they are to submit to an examination. The less likely are, they are to agree to treatment. That uh, comes with a course. Uh, one thing that mentally um, impaired individuals may lose is uh, what is called insight, the ability to recognize that something is wrong. And um, so uh, so in that case, well, of course, um, an individual has the choice uh, to uh, receive or not receive treatment, but uh, we no longer um, require consent when it is an emergency. So when the person is a danger to themselves, to others, or the public, then it becomes a, an emergency. And in that case, we may need to uh, contain the person, uh, make sure they, they don't have access to weapons, and do an urgent evaluation. That's actually quite a common uh, practice in psychiatry that all 50 states uh, not only allow, but um, often mandate legally because of um, because that's actually the illness speaking. It's not a healthy decision-making on the part of the person. And once the person is treated or removed from that, um, uh, from that impairment, they, uh, they will see that, you know, they come back and thank you for, um, for forcing the treatment or evaluation on them. Uh, I know that's a little hard to take and, uh, and hard to understand. We have uh, an obligation, an ethical obligation, uh, based on the Universal Geneva Declaration that uh, all medical professions are supposed to keep with humanitarian goals. 
And so none of what we do is to harm anyone, to uh, to insult anyone. Uh, well, our goal is to save lives and prevent death and to promote the health, not just of our individual patients, but but the health and well-being of the public as well. Uh, all medical ethics codes uh, uh, obligate us to that. And um, so what we're saying and what we're speaking about, uh, it is unfortunate that it has come to this place where we need to speak out about a sitting president, but it is a glaring omission that there is no test for fitness for duty for the commander-in-chief. In the same way there is for every military officer and every civilian service person, not only that, many uh, governmental jobs and private jobs that have anything to do with, uh, with a, a, a significant level of risk. Uh, you often have a fitness for duty exam as a condition for taking the job. But here we have the most important, the most powerful, and uh, upon which the entire society, not just our nation, but the world, depends on uh, the cognitive and psychological soundness and, um, and capacity of the president. And yet we don't have that uh, that examination for for a presidential candidate. Right. So one reason we probably don't have that examination, at least for presidents elect, is it's sort of a place where psychiatry and political science bump heads. That it could be argued that the American people knowingly elected a chaotic, profane erratic person to the presidency of the United States, that having beheld a lot of his behavior, uh, they they made this choice, that that's who they wanted, uh, at least at the level of the Electoral College, that's who they wanted to run the country, and that the will of the people should not blithely be overturned. And we might not even want to set up a system where if you don't like the person who's president, you make the argument that he's uh, he has a psychiatric or neurological defect. And it's oh, a, the, we, the, yeah, go ahead. we don't. Yeah. We don't wish to elect uh, a, a, a person who is, um, I mean, we don't wish to. Uh, so basically, uh, what I'm trying to say is that, uh, of course, choice holds, and we ought to respect the the decision of the electorate. Um, but that is only within normal range. Mm-hmm. Everything, uh, I mean, there's a vast range of normality. Um, that human beings can show, uh, even in terms of personality and style, where uh, mental health professionals never intervene in, in those situations. We uh, are not supposed to intervene in, in any situation uh, of politics. Uh, but when, uh, w- when that condition comes to a level of emergency, where, where lives could be at stake, then actually our medical ethics obligate us to intervene. And um, uh, and it's not something that either political scientists or, or the ordinary person will be trained to be able to detect because uh, ordinary people are exposed to uh, normal people most, most of the time, uh, people who are healthy. And so they will inevitably see what they what is in front of them as uh, a variation of the normal. It takes it may take a professional to recognize that these signs are not normal and actually harmful. That's that's how you tell apart 
disease from health. Uh, disease leads to damage, destruction, and death. Whereas uh, health, uh, a healthy condition, no matter the ideology or political persuasion, would be life-affirming because it's made from a healthy place. And it is the person making the choice. Oftentimes when an illness sets in, the person may be voicing the choice, but it is not the person speaking because they are not well. They, they are held hostage by the illness, if you will. You can say that. So it, it's our obligation to help the person and help them on the course, get on the course of recovery. So, Dr. Bandy Lee, I, I wonder if also uh, what, one of the other things we, we run into here is that the American public has never, in, in the in the entirety of the existence of, of this nation, really kind of reached any sense of peace with the whole subject that we're talking about, particularly as pertains to the president. So the number of presidents who um, have, during the time, during their time of office, uh, openly sought psychotherapeutic help the way most of us would if we were having a really bad six months or something. You know, I mean, a lot of us have gone to see psychotherapists of some kinds. This has never happened with the president. And for the most part, presidential candidates have to prove. And, and I concede, by the way, this is a really weird thing. Presidents and presidential candidates in the past have had to prove that they've never had any kind of psychiatric th- psychiatric treatment or therapy, that that's considered a black mark. We'd almost rather have somebody with an untreated medical condition than admit that somebody could be president having been even treated in the past for a medical condition. It's a very binary relationship that we have right now. It's an unrealistic one, but it, you know, you, you have to be a zero and not a one, and there's just no space in between those. And I, I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons it's hard to have this conversation. Right. There's a lot of secrecy and stigma surrounding uh, psychiatric conditions, and that really should not be the case because uh, mental uh, impairment is no different than physical impairment. Uh, uh, Illnesses also are considered exactly the same from a medical standpoint. They are uh, equally objectively observable. They're equally uh, debilitating, and you can put people through standardized tests. Uh, psychiatric conditions may not have a blood test, but there are st- standardized tests that are objective and um, and do not depend on subjective judgment. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, the trainings that we receive as mental health professionals is to bring that objectivity. So, so you work really mainly with objective signs, observable data, and uh, research results. And that's how you form a diagnosis. And actually, psychiatric diagnoses are the most reliable uh, among the medical specialties, um, among the most reliable. And so uh, uh, really, there is a need to educate the public uh, in ways that also happened with medical conditions. There was a time when medical conditions were considered very uh, stigmatizing and secretive. Um, uh, cancer, for example, right. or, uh, or uh, uh, Roosevelt's uh, physical um, 
Exactly. Yeah, that's a, so, 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 Dr. Lee, I just so we don't run out of time here. I, yeah. So, obviously, you're in kind of a double bind here because in order to make the case that there should be an emergency evaluation, you have to identify some reasons. I mean, there wasn't yeah. an there wasn't an emergency evaluation of President Obama. I mean, he sat up late at night mm-hmm. eating almonds, but you know, he there was no real reason to to do an emergency evaluation. So, ultimately, you have to look at President Trump and say, for reasons X, Y, Z, A, B, and C, there needs to be an emergency evaluation of this person. And, and right, I know that right. there's some people in your profession who are not comfortable with doing that from a distance. Well, um, I mean, there are two issues going on. Um, there's, there's also uh, the American Psychiatric Association turning what's called the Goldwater Rule, not to diagnose a public figure from afar. They turned it into an unlimited uh, gag rule. Um, and uh, in their interpretation, that that's not consistent with the actual rule. It also uh, goes against uh, a lot of the, uh, more overriding medical principles. Um, so it uh, so the contradictions are a little concerning, and we talk about those concerns in the book. Uh, so many people may go by that interpretation. I find changing ethical guidelines under political pressure to be very, to be a dangerous sign in itself. So actually, we do abide by the, the Goldwater Rule. We do not make diagnoses uh, in the book. And uh, I never make diagnoses myself. In fact, we do not even need to. Uh, uh, to assess risk of danger, uh, you only need, most of the information does not come from a personal interview. It comes from exactly the information we have on the president, um, his responses to situations uh, in real time, over time. We've, we've witnessed a lot of his responses. We see immediate reactions uh, through his Twitter account, which is an enormous uh, source of data. Uh, we see uh, 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 others' reports. Uh, that are consistent with our suspicions of danger. Uh, and so uh, for to uh, declare dangerousness, risk of danger, uh, you do not have to have all the information the way you do uh, as in making a diagnosis. You only have an, you only need enough information to raise alarms. And we have had that since very early on. Uh, we just couldn't figure out a way to, voice our concerns. So actually, the book itself is meant as a public service to give our uh, offer our expertise uh, in in layperson's terms. Uh, all revenues themselves are going into a fund that will promote public health. And so, uh, so that was our way of trying to educate and warn the public about the dangers that they face by uh, having Mr. Trump in the office of the presidency. All right. Well, Dr. Bandy X. Lee, appearing here today as a private citizen, we should emphasize, and is the uh, editor uh, of The Dangerous Case uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, We are going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. So we've dealt with one half of the question of whether someone is a stable genius. Let's deal with the other half. We talked about stability. Let's talk about genius with James Fallows after this break.
All right. I mean, there are, there are only uh, remarkable weekends and remarkable weekdays during the, the Trump years. There are no unremarkable ones, as far as I can tell. But one of the things that made this past weekend remarkable was that the president himself took to Twitter, as is his wont, to address the whole question of, A, whether he is mentally stable, or B, and B, whether or not he is smart. Uh, this is in response uh, mainly to a book by Michael Wolff, Fire and Fury, in which a number of people suggest that he's just not bright, not able to concentrate on important questions, intellectually incurious, et cetera. So Jamie, joining us now, uh, well, and we should say that he tweeted, among other things, he tweeted some of his accomplishments uh, and and did describe himself as a stable genius. My thought went to uh, the writer Roy Blunt Jr., who once said that uh, Jesse James uh, probably never described himself as a desperado. When people asked him what he did, he usually probably said, oh, something in banks. Uh, so James Fallows is with us. James Fallows is a national correspondent for The Atlantic, author of many books, including uh, most recently China Airborne, his new book, Our Towns, uh, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, co-written with his wife, Deborah Fallows, who will be out in May. Oh, that's going to be a, another appearance on the show. I hope that sounds really interesting. Uh, James Fallows, welcome to our conversation. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, it's it's uh, difficult to, ri- to arrive at any objective assessment of President Trump's mental capacities. But what you wrote about was more how people who are unquestionably, truly, exceptionally smart talk about how smart they are, which is not very much. But I'll let you elaborate. So the you know I've actually never met Donald Trump although I mentioned in this piece that like everybody in the world I feel exposed to him adequately at this point but in a long career in journalism and just in life I've had a chance to meet and spend time with a number of people who the world clearly classifies in the way that Donald Trump classifies himself you know Nobel laureates in the sciences or people who founded tech companies or I, in China last month, I uh, had time to chance to spend time with the uh, youngest ever women's world uh, chess champion, who was a, a very impressive young woman. And the main point I was trying to make is that um, without knowing directly about Trump's own level of knowledge or uh, or cognition, the people who we regard as being really smart don't talk the way he does. In particularly, they don't go around saying, I'm smart. And they, they are even more than that, they seem to be humble and humble and humbled by the areas of knowledge that they don't have, as if the more you know about things, the more you're aware of what you cannot know. So, uh, you know, th- this is not directly an assessment of, of, of Trump, but this is sort of by, by triangulation, people who we know to be smart behave in a different way. Right. And I think we've all had that experience in life. When I think about the smartest people that I've encountered, in a way, how smart they are would be the kind of subject that they wouldn't even find particularly interesting. I mean, for, because first of all, as you say, they know this, they've known it all their lives, that things are easier for them to do. Certain mental tasks uh, are easier for them to complete than for their peers. And also, because they're smart, they're interested in a wide range of topics other than themselves. Uh, exactly. And, you know, I was mentioning that there there are... <laughs> In the realm of the really gifted, there are variations that they are in any other realm of life. And there are people who we think of and actually admire for their flamboyance. I mentioned Muhammad Ali, a man you know, original, originally of athletic great talent, but who extended his talent in many other ways. And part of his saga and part you know, with his role in sort of racial consciousness in the United States was his 
I am the greatest braggadocio, which he he backed up, which is very different from the average um, scientist who uh, may not get get around to telling you till after a while that he's recently won a Nobel Prize, et, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it, there's also the case that that some people who have particular talent in one realm are able to extend it into others. Um, I mentioned obliquely in the piece a man named Harold Varmus, a one-time um, Nobel laureate in medicine, who then directed the uh, the NIH, which is a very different kind of skill, a kind of management skill. Other people um, sort of incorrectly or unwisely extend their talents one place or another. But it's a uh, it, it's just I, I'm just trying to say that that again without directly assessing. Uh, what Trump knows or or uh, or doesn't know, it is quite remarkable the gap between this I am a genius um, braggadocio and the way actual geniuses seem to talk. Right. So um, over the weekend, because uh, of Wolf's book and because uh, of a rebubbling of this whole set of questions about how smart is this guy? Is he as dumb as he sounds sometimes? Uh, President Trump found it necessary to deal with this kind of by proxy. He sent out Stephen Miller, one of his closest senior advisors, uh, put him on CNN's uh, Jake Tapper show. Uh, Let's hear a little bit of how that went. The author is a garbage author of a garbage book. And the tragic thing about this book, and there are many things about it that are unfortunate, but the portrayal of the president in the book is so contrary to reality, to the experience of those who work with him, to my own experience having spent the last two years with him. You know, on the campaign, I had the chance to travel all across the country with the president on uh, Trump Force One. It would be the president, me, Dan Scavino, Hope Hicks, a few other people, uh, going from rally to rally to rally to rally. And I saw a man who was a political genius, somebody who we would be going down, landing in dissent. There'd be a breaking news development. And in 20 minutes, he would dictate 10 paragraphs of new material to address mm-hmm. that event so, and then deliver flawlessly in front of an audience of 10,000 people. So, Jim Fallows, you know, one of the I, I was listening to this and I was trying to recall if anything in my own lifetime resembled it. So George W. Bush was often described by people as being one of the less bright presidents, let's put it that way. Um, But I don't ever remember anybody, I I don't remember any kind of campaign on his behalf or his proxies to correct that. Um, I I don't know. What do you you make of a thing like that? So uh, there there are a couple points that come to mind when, when when I hear this amazing clip from Stephen Miller. First, as I should probably clarify for your listeners, long ago, back in the 1970s, when I was in my, my 20s, I actually uh, worked for for President Jimmy Carter as one of his White House staffers, as, as Miller is now. And since that time, I've seen White House staffers on TV and you know, making sort of public and private endorsements of, of the president they worked for. And there really isn't anybody I can recall who has the same sort of uh, M.O. that Stephen Miller is choosing to, to, to make in, in, uh, in public of being sort of so, so Roy Cohn-like, of just aggressive and, and, and flat earth. Usually people who are representing the president try to be affable and charming and playing to an audience um, larger than, than the president. A second point is that the claims he makes about Trump dictating these 10 paragraphs of flaws material and, and deliberate – the public actually has their own experience to compare this with. We've seen Trump at rallies over these past two and a half years, and you know that he is effect- effective in sort of a spectacle way. But I 
challenge people to come up with 10 paragraphs of this eloquent prose that he um, allegedly came up with. I guess the final point relevant to your question about George W. Bush is that people who are presidents, uh, the one I worked for, uh, Jimmy Carter, and the others I've observed over time, you know, they do have just this they recognize they've done something that only 40-plus other people in the history of the world have done and that nobody around them has done, too. They, they, they've, they've won the presidency, and usually that express itself, expresses itself in a quiet certainty. They don't need to prove things to you because they are the president. So the, the, the fact of needing to prove things is, again, different from what we've seen in, in, in other presidents. So one of the things that you discuss in your piece uh, is uh, we did an entire entire show, actually, um, about overconfidence. Uh, And in the world of cognitive science and social science, this is often described as the Dunning-Kruger effect. So it's, I mean, I'm getting this wrong, but 63% of Frenchmen say that they are better than average lovers, for example. (laughs) So, um, you know, that that in fact, part of the human condition, uh, it turns out, is that that we are disproportionately wired to have disproportionately large amounts of confidence about our ability to do certain things. Not everybody, obviously, but it is it is a tendency. And, and it does seem as though President Trump's confidence about himself, which is which we are constantly reminded about, doesn't track necessarily all that well against his observable record. Uh, that is true, and, and I, I think that the the Dunning Kruger um, concept and paper, which I, as you say, I mentioned in the piece, does seem to apply to him with a particular angle when it comes to to public policy. I think most people who've been anywhere near presidential administration—that is, what they actually do in the job, as opposed to how they run for the job—is really stunned by how difficult the job is, that the only decisions a normal president gets to make during a day are the decisions where there's no good answer. It's like dealing with North Korea or your name, dealing with Syria, where because decisions that have a clearer, more obvious answer, somebody else makes before it gets to the president. And that's partly why presidents all look so much older when they leave the office than when they, they come in, just because they spend all day making impossible choices. And there were signs in the first, even the first year of his time in office, of this being some kind of revelation to Trump that, you know, who knew that health care was a complicated issue, or it turns out that China is involved in North Korea, et cetera. And so I think that his, the fact that he did end up as president with this unique background of having never held public office before, unlike any other, any of the, the 44 predecessors in the office, made him gave him a sort of Dunning-Kruger-style sense of how hard can this be. He'll tell people to make a deal, that'll be done with it. He can have Jared Kushner solve the other half dozen of the problems. So I think we will see how the, the, the dawning reality of how difficult this job is, whether that is um, how that meshes with the gears of his own decision-making process. I'm curious to know. I mean, a piece like the one that you wrote might occasion some interesting responses. Did, what, did you hear back from, from from anybody interesting about this whole subject of how smart people evaluate themselves? I, I've had a, a fair amount of discussion on the Atlantic's website. They've begun publishing in the past few few hours of people writing in. And yes, it's been I, I've had I guess there have been a couple of there have been three light motifs. One is by people who are really think I am the devil. And that Trump uh, must must be really smart because look what he's done. And 
you haters and losers are just trying to tear him down. So that is one category. A second category is people writing in with confirming evidence. I just got a note a few minutes ago from a guy who worked at a famous biotech firm saying he only learned after sitting next to a guy for six months that the guy next to him had won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Now, never, there was no certificate on his wall or anything like that. And the third category, sort of the minority one, is people saying, um, yes, there is this general tendency of people who are actually gifted to be modest about it, but there are certain exceptions, and they were giving me uh, examples of that. So one of the things I like writing about for the Atlantic's website is we have a broad and sophisticated readership uh, like the NPR listenership, and people write in, and so you can have these ongoing exchanges, and you learn more after you post a piece than you did before it. Exactly. Well, then we look forward to uh, other pieces you may write about this. It's been very exciting to have you on the show today. Jim Fallows, uh, national correspondent for The Atlantic, author of many books, most recently China Airborne. But look for also Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, co-written with his wife, Deborah Fallows, out in May. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. I look forward to talking in a few months. All right. And um, so meanwhile, last night there were the Golden Globes. And, you know, the Golden Globes are often distinguished for the fact that people have, like, alcohol right on their tables, (laughs) even though it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon where they are. And so one of the things about the Golden Globes is they get get a little messy sometimes. People perhaps say things that they regret. Um, It was a different kind of Golden Globes last night. We're going to talk to Roger Catlin about this uh, and other issues in television and entertainment on the other side of this break. What's so great about stability anyway? Where is it written that mood swings are bad? Where is that thing I had where it was written? I can't believe I lost the thing. But it doesn't matter. Let's go get some pizza. Today's show was produced by Big Brain, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has never been in a stable. She's an aquarium genius. The part of Bill Curry was played by Thomas Eagleton. On tomorrow's show, loving and hating sugar. And now. Back to Colin. Yeah, I would just like to, just apropos of the last two segments, recall that uh, Thomas Eagleton in 1972 uh, had to drop out as George McGovern's running mate because he had been treated in the past for psychiatric disorders and probably received electroconvulsive therapy. And then in 1988, there was a rumor that Michael Dukakis had at one point sought some kind of treatment um, uh, and he had to disprove them. He had to prove that he'd never had any kind of psychological counseling or treatment of any kind because that was the goal. And the person who taunted him the most about it in 1988 was Ronald Reagan, who uh, famously said, I'm not going to pick on an invalid and then had to walk that back. And of course, we now know that there are signs in 1988 that uh, Ronald Reagan is the one who, in fact, is beginning to exhibit a cognitive decline. Uh, analyses of his speech patterns there indicate that uh, the Alzheimer's had already started to take hold. Uh, anyway, so it's just, you know, we have a very weird relationship with this whole topic, and we probably will continue to. Anyway, uh, last night, as I said, was were the Golden Globe Awards uh, by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Uh, they typically have a maybe looser and more freewheeling style than something as august as the Academy Awards. Not that those are really august. Uh, but yes, there are there is beverage alcohol sitting out there on the tables, uh, and people sometimes are 
uh, a little unfiltered about what they say. But that, I don't think, was the case last night. Roger Catlin's joining us, former Hartford Current television critic, currently a freelance writer with The Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, and writes daily about television at rogercatlin.com. I believe he's on the West Coast right now for the unveiling of some of the television delights that await us in the months ahead. Uh, He's in L.A. for the TV Critics Winter Press Tour, is what it's called, uh, where he's uh, covering it for TV Worth Watching. Hi, Roger. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. So last night uh, I watched uh, a lot of the Golden Globes. And I mean, unsurprisingly, I I think it is fair to say that they were uptight. You know, I just saw a clip, too, from the Oscars last year because Jimmy Kimmel's going to be uh, hosting it this year and uh, was here to talk about that. And it was just the opposite of what you what we all have assumed that the Golden Globes are the Golden Globes are the wild and freewheeling uh, uh, award show, and the Oscars are staid and august. Uh, it couldn't be more staid than last night. And and last year at the Oscars, they were dropping cookies and milk from the uh, from the ceiling. So it's it's changed. Right. So the so, alcohol didn't matter. Right. So Seth Meyers was the host. He described himself as the first monkey shot into space, at least in terms of people who will be hosting these heavily watched award shows. Uh, and, and I think his reference, Roger, was he's the person who's going to be testing out what you can say and what you can't. Yeah. Kimmel, when he was here uh, just uh, this morning, said he thought that joke was meant just for him because it, <laughs> it is it is a new atmosphere out here. And for a man to be uh, hosting, uh, you know, it's, he's got to tread lightly. Do you think that the current atmosphere affected the, the way some of the awards were given? In other words, affected the results? I mean, d- did, say, A Handmaid's Tale um, win more awards because we're in the moment that we're in right now? I don't know. I, I thought A Handmaid's Tale was great, and I think it didn't win enough awards last night. I don't know what it was. Um, uh, you know, there was a Best Actress award given for that, but not. I, I don't think the show itself was nominated, mm-hmm. or I don't. I don't even know what their rules were, or their cutoff, or why right. that why that occurred. Uh, but you know, uh, Little Big Lies, I thought was entertaining as a limited series, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I would have voted for it as the best. Uh, and I certainly I didn't put it in a top ten list, um, just because. I mean, there are there were Hollywood stars in it, and it was there were female producers. Right. But uh, you know, you didn't know who the killer was, but you didn't know who the victim was either. Right. So, so that's that's storytelling problems to me. It may have been significant that um, that Best Actor award uh, went to Alexander Skarsgård for that series, on which he plays a monster. <laughs> so maybe that was yeah, the way but, of kind of expressing the political moment. Yeah, he was. Uh, uh, he was the one who represented all the bad, and and he did it so well. But uh, it could have, you know, they, I think there were all uh, villains in that uh, in that category, actually. So, <laughs> except for Alfred Molina. Um, he actually, I did notice that Skarsgård did refer to the other actresses as girls. He kept going very quickly, but I thought that may not even be something that you can do anymore. <laughs> the rules have been changed, yeah. and I, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just an awkward moment. Uh, for men, yeah, uh, but it's uh, it's all for the good, of course. Uh, you know, if behavior changes and uh, women get paid more, get more jobs, uh, are recognized, are listened to, that's fine. But as how it fits into what we think of as the Golden Globes and a fun night, well, maybe it it 
it didn't. Well, if there's one if there's one centerpiece or showpiece from the night, it's certainly the acceptance speech given by Oprah Winfrey. She won the Cecil B. DeMille Award, which, as Seth Meyers uh, pointed out in his uh, his monologue, is a great honor for Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, <laughs> so here's Oprah. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say, me too, again. So a little bit more of um, a, a, an inspirational speech, a little bit more of an almost political sounding speech than you typically see uh, at the Golden Globes, Roger. And there was a, a, a flurry, uh, maybe even a groundswell uh, on the Internet saying Oprah for president. I mean, I don't know. How did you how did you judge that moment? Um, I, I couldn't quite square it with Cecil B. DeMille or movies or Oprah's, Oprah's role in movies <laughs> that would, you know, this is a, this is an award that's gone to kind of old Hollywood before they go. So I don't, you know, and I, I'm sure she was a, a savvy choice for this particular time, but um, yeah, what she, what she addressed was uh, what was going on overall, not just in Hollywood, I guess, but the whole country and it, and hearing it back just now, it does sound like a political speech. But it's really crazy to have the lead of CNN News this morning be the possibilities of a presidential run. I mean, that's where we get into crazy world. Um, I mean, that's a, that's an office she said she definitely wasn't going to run for. And um, and now people will talk about it. And it reminds me of when Trump was, was floating the idea. It's like, well, whether it's crazy or not, let's talk about it some more because uh, when we do, people will tune in because they know who that personality is. Right. No, CNN has every reason to want this to happen. Uh, I'm not sure uh, whether the body politic of, of the United States has quite the same group of reasons, but it'll, it's definitely now going to be talked about. Hey, Roger, you just have a few minutes left and you are out there looking at the coming TV season. You know, the first question I wanted to ask you about isn't about what's coming, but I'm also I'm wondering if I think we're in a period where some of the the premium channels like Showtime, Stars, HBO, they must be dealing now with anxiety about cord cutting uh, and about people who really need a persuasive reason to get HBO, particularly if Game of Thrones is going to be on until 2019. Is that evident mm-hmm. in the way they roll stuff out now, or are you picking that up uh, at all? Well, I, uh, HBO has yet to present their uh, roster uh, for this uh, January, but... Um, uh, Showtime was here just uh, um, uh, over the weekend, and um, and they're feeling very good about it because, like HBO, they've rolled out their own app. They've they've kind of dealt with this idea of uh, trying to get the cord cutters on their own through their own uh, uh, special uh, you know online streaming service that has all their shows. And and they were pretty uh, upbeat about the kind of shows they're presenting. They were happy about. Twin Peaks and how that went for them, mm-hmm. even though it might not ever come back. Um, and and they had some uh, shows that looked pretty interesting and, and documentaries that looked like they were good. I mean, I, I think those stations and stars, too, they have a show coming out that 
that looks like it's interesting, and they've had a few uh, shows that look interesting. Yeah, so what's the star? What, what is the yeah, what is the stars one? I feel like I read about that somewhere. Oh, it's the J.P. Simmons um, one where. Oh he, yeah, he plays uh, two different people in two different time periods, right? Yeah, what one is an insurance uh, ad salesman, and the, no, that's, that doesn't have to do with insurance at all. <laughs> no, no, and it doesn't involve Juno either. I don't think, but um, <laughs> but yeah, that actually did look good. So I don't know. We've got l- about thirty seconds left. If there's one TV show that we should be uh, primed for, that we should make sure that we don't miss, uh, do you have a particular favorite coming well, up? Uh, starting pretty soon this month is uh, this uh, assassination of Johnny Versace on FX. That is very opulent looking and has a great cast. It's not quite, it's, it's under the, the rubric of American Crime Story, Ryan Murphy's thing, uh, which uh, the first time he went out with that was The People versus O.J., which was, which was great. Uh, this one may not touch the greatness of that, but it's, um, it's, it's, it looks like it'll be interesting to watch. All right, Destination Television. With our Destination Television critic, Roger Catlin, uh, you can read uh, his writing on a daily basis uh, about television at rogercatlin.com. He's out there on the West Coast right now uh, doing this coverage for tvworthwatching.com. Uh, we've got to go, but thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan uh, for producing this show, for uh, to Kion Wolf for making it sound so great. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about the evils and perhaps also the joys of sugar. Yeah, sugar. 